for a special treat this morning. Uh, we have a guest speaker here, Mr. Brad Edgar. Um, Brad has been friends with lots of people from Wellspring for many, many years, um, been a very dear friend. Um, Brad is also a counselor who has helped a lot of people from our church. Um, I have met with him many times during some pretty rough seasons in my life, and he has been a tremendous help to me through several counseling sessions, kind of through some dark times, and so I'm extremely grateful for Brad, and we're just very blessed to have him here this morning to be able to share God's word with us, so let's give Mr. Brad Edgar a warm welcome. Thank you, Justin. How are we doing on the sound? Everybody okay? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Hey, thank you so much for letting me be here this morning. Although I guess I really shouldn't thank you guys. You didn't have a choice. I'm just here. You're stuck with me, right? I should thank Bob. So Bob, if you're listening to this later on, uh, thank you so much. Um, I love this church. And there's so many people in this church that are so dear to me, uh, who I just love with all my heart. And so it really is a pleasure and an honor for me to be here uh, with you guys this morning. And it's a great day to be at Wellspring, right? Great day to get in God's Word, right? And it's a great day uh, to dive into the continued study on 1 Peter. Uh, And we got a lot to cover today, so let's jump in there to the verses for the day. I think 1 Peter is in uh, page 1109 in your pew Bibles. I think I heard Bob say that once, but... um, Turn there, and uh, our passage today is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to use my phone to do it because it's, uh, it's easier for me to see. <laughs> uh, I'm using my Bible app on here. I promise you I'm not playing Pokemon Go while I'm up here, all right? Uh, I'm actually reading from God's Word through the Bible app, uh, the version. So... Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 3 of First Peter. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. 
to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right, God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that it still speaks to us across such a great distance and across so many centuries. It still applies to us powerfully today. So God, open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to understand what you would have to tell us this morning. And may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you, O Lord. Amen. So we can know without a doubt why Peter wrote this little letter. This little letter that he meant to send out to the churches, but it's also a letter for all of us, too. And he does, he, we know why he wrote it, because if you jump ahead a little bit to chapter 5, verse 12, Peter tells us why he wrote it. He says, I wrote this letter to encourage you. Okay? He wrote this letter to uh, testify to the truth of the gospel. As an eyewitness, Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus. He walked with him and was with him, and he's attesting to the truth of the gospel. And he wrote this letter to exhort us to stand strong, to stand firm. When the heat gets turned up, when the screws get tight, when the world around us gets shaky, and we face opposition and trouble, Peter is exhorting us, encouraging us to stand firm. And when he was writing this to these churches, and, and they were facing uh, th- these churches in the face of uh, oppression and persecution, Paul, I mean Peter, and I might mix them. If I say Paul, I mean Peter. Okay, I'll just tell you that right now. Uh, uh, Peter, in the face of opposition and persecution, he preaches something really incredible. He preaches... Uh, Compassion. And he preaches submission. Right? And so, going back to verse 8 of chapter 3, we'll read that first verse. If you could put that first section up for me. Thank you. Finally, all of you be like-minded. So the word finally right there, Peter is telling us that he's wrapping up the section that, that preceded. He's kind of wrapping it up. Finally. And the section that preceded, if you remember, he talks about submission. And he talks about some specific situations where uh, those who follow Christ, the churches, us, where we should be submissive and show compassion. The first one was government authorities. Okay? That might be hard for some of us these days to feel like we need to be submissive to government authorities. But man, compared to where they were facing back then, it's nothing now. But Peter preaches submission. Submit yourself in a way that glorifies God. Submit yourself to the authorities of the earth, governmental authorities. He talks about, then he talks about another specific situation. Slaves, submit to your masters as unto the Lord. 
And I think Bob covered in an early sermon about slavery and, you know, slavery back then is different than the experience of slavery, in, in, you know, in the history of our country. Um, but it's still a radical thing to tell a slave, be submissive to your masters in a way that glorifies the Lord. And we can apply it to us today, you know, in, in, in terms of those who are in authority over us. A boss, if you're a student, a teacher, have an attitude of submission in a way that glorifies God to those who are placed in authority over you. Then he talks about submission in the context of, of husbands submitting to their wives, wives submitting to their husbands. And then he gets to verse 8 and he says, finally, I'm wrapping this up, guys. And he's saying, if you didn't fall into any of these other categories before, which is kind of hard to believe. But maybe, you know, he's thinking, well, maybe some of you guys reading this or hearing this think, well, I, that doesn't really apply to me or it's not really relevant to me. I feel like this thing's falling off, so um, it's, it's creeping off my head, my huge head, as my kids remind me. Uh, they, uh, uh, where was I? Help me out, somebody, if you're listening. Oh, maybe it doesn't apply to me, Right? So Paul doesn't, he says, okay, let's make it clear. Every one of you, all of you, it reminds me of the, the Robert De Niro in, in the movie Taxi Driver. This is going way back, you know, where he's standing in front of the mirror and he's kind of practicing being tough. And he goes, you talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? And Peter would say, yes, I'm talking to you. He's talking to us, okay? And what he's telling us is that it applies to all of us. It applies to every church. And what he's saying is these words that are going to follow, he lists out six essential characteristics of what uh, it means to be a, of a Christian. Six essential characteristics of the church, and he says, don't make any mistake, I'm talking to you. Now before we jump into the six things that he lists out here, uh, I'm going to, uh, I, got, I got to talk about it for a second. Because it's really important that we get this right. You see, these six essential characteristics, and they are essential to Peter. These are not add-ons, these are not options, these are like, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To have Christ in you. This is what it means to be a church that professes Jesus Christ. But, but these are not a list of things to do to just make you feel okay. These are not a list of things uh, to earn merit. Or to earn a place in heaven. Or to earn brownie points. No. These essential characteristics are, are, uh, are things that if you profess to have Christ in your heart, if the Holy Spirit is doing its work within you, individually and as a church, if the image of Christ is being formed in you, these essential characteristics are going to come out. And uh, I'm going to skip back a little bit. And I'm gonna, it, it, because these things come out of what Peter tells us is our true nature. I'm going to go back. I'm going to do it on my phone so I can really read it well. Go back to chapter 2 of Peter, if you can, real quick. 
First Peter chapter 2, and it's verse 9. Let's see if I can get there. In chapter 2, verse 9, Peter tells us who we are when we have Christ in us. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the, pres- the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter tells us that we are a chosen people and a royal priesthood when we have Christ within us. And if that's true about who we are, then these essential characteristics are what flows out of us. And here's, a, here's an example, just to illustrate this point, because it's really important. We've got to get this right, okay, of what this is about. So this year, I, 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 started, I did a garden outside and uh, just got some raised boxes and, you know, did the dirt and got some heirloom seeds and planted it and, and I'm growing carrots and, and beets and what else, peppers and watermelons, the kids are excited about the watermelons, what else, we're, I don't know, I've got parsley and rosemary and kale and all this great stuff, right, and, and, uh, and so I started uh, with seeds, I got these great heirloom seeds, and I planted them and watered them, and, you know, and at first, you know, they come up as little, you know, little seedlings, and they kind of, all the plants kind of look alike at first, real small, and then you, you take care of them, you water them, they get some sunlight, and then they start growing, and, and a carrot plant starts to develop these distinctive leaves, and the beet starts developing these distinctive leaves, right? And, and then eventually, as they grow and mature with water and sun and care, you know, some organic fertilizer, they produce a vegetable. The carrot plant produces a carrot. The beet seed produces a beet, right? And it would be ridiculous for me to think that if I planted a, I'll put my beet down, I'll use a carrot. If I planted a carrot seed and it matured and grew, it would be ridiculous for me to think that a beet would come out of a carrot plant or any other vegetable would come out of a carrot plant other than a carrot, right? It's logical and it would be ludicrous to think anything else. And that's the fruit. It's like in Galatians when we read about the fruit of the Spirit. That list of things is not things like, hey, you got to get this stuff together. And if you do that, then you can start coming to church. And then maybe God will extend his grace to you. No. It's when the Spirit dwells in you and begins to form the nature of Christ in you, you will naturally, out of the character, out of the DNA of the carrot plant, comes a carrot, right? So these things are formed. I probably shouldn't do that because my mouth is full. Um, man, that's good. So anyway, when the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, boy, I violated every law of speaking right there by eating while I'm up here. Be patient with me. But hopefully you remember that. I want you to remember it. Don't get it backwards. But I also want you to know that just like planting a carrot seed, to think that any other fruit would come out of you is ridiculous, or produce would come out of you is ridiculous. And that's what Peter says with this stuff. He says that if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, these six essential things will start to be who you are and be 
uh, what your church is about. So let's look at the first one. First of all, be like-minded. That's unity. Be like-minded. Literally, it, the word there means a being of one mind. And this idea of being like-minded or being of one mind, being united together, uh, is familiar. It should be familiar to you because Jesus said these words. Remember, Peter was with Jesus. If you turn to, I won't make you do it right now, but you turn to uh, John 17, uh, verses 21 and around there, uh, Jesus is, is, this is his high priestly prayer. So in John 17, Jesus had been, it's right before he got arrested. He's in his last night with the disciples. He's teaching them. This is like the, the dying, the last words of a dying man. He's telling them all the things that are important. And he starts to pray for them. And he prays and he says, and he prays for us. It says, Jesus prays for all believers. Again, he's talking to you. He says, God, I pray that they are one like you and I are one. That we are like-minded, unified. And Peter's reflecting those words of Jesus. And we are to be like-minded to the point under Christ, brought together in unity under Christ with a like-mindedness that the world thinks is incredible. How do they do that? I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Real quick. If I can get there. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now I know when you start reading verses like this, our, our minds tend to go, but, but what about this? What, what about, but I want you guys, don't do that. Let the word, let God's word speak for itself. Let it say what it says. And then ask yourself, how am I doing How are we doing as a church in being like-minded? And that begs the question, how do you do that with such a diverse population of people and different personalities and different opinions and different gifts and skills and abilities and they come from different backgrounds and, and all this stuff? How do, you, how do you get united? Well, what's important to know is that unity is not uniformity. Okay? If you think about, the band was awesome this morning. Every time I've been here, the band's been great, right? And, uh, and these guys are musicians, and they understand this kind of, about music. My son's a musician. He's a, a music uh, education major at K-State. And, and, uh, but, you know, and, and by the way, how cool is that guitar that you're playing? What do you call that shape of flying something? Who, where's the guy? The, what's that? Explorer? Yeah. That's a, cool, that's a cool guitar, isn't it, you know? My daughter look, look at that guitar, it's cool. And it is really cool. But think about if everybody in the band played that instrument, as cool as it is. Right? And I guess that would kind of be cool to play songs all, I don't know, six, six guitars like that. But that's, but probably not, right? Those of you who understand music, it's like, no. The best music 
is when you have a mandolin and a harmonica and different types of guitars and a drummer. And it all comes together. And they come together playing the same song but different parts. Or if you have a choir, right? I guess there's a beauty in like a huge choir singing in unison. But the best music, the most beautiful music, is when there's harmony in different parts. Now, if, if you know, six different instruments and everybody's playing a different song at a different tempo and a different beat, that would be awful too, right? Right? In a different key. So that's the picture of us working together, coming together, being like-minded with a, with a purpose uh, that's bigger than you and under the direction of Christ. Unity. Last word on unity is from Ephesians 4.13. You can, you can read that later if you want. But uh, Ephesians 4.13 talks again about unity. And Paul is telling the church that when you're united, unity is a sign of, of maturity. And likewise, disunity is a sign of spiritual immaturity. But as you mature in Christ, as an individual, as a church, unity will be a natural outbreak, outflow of who you are in him. The second one is sympathy. He says, be like-minded, be sympathetic. Sympathy, the second essential characteristic. And what that means is being sensitive to other emotion, others' emotions. And and uh, Peter's saying, you got to be like-minded, but you also have to be like-emotioned. I don't know if that's a word, emotioned. Right? When my neighbor feels, do I feel? It requires, um, it requires diving in and getting under the surface with one another. Going, are you willing to get into the weeds with the people you're sitting next to? The people you worship with? Sympathy. And if we're stuck on ourselves, how can we be sympathetic to anybody else? And so as Christ is being formed in you, as you mature in your faith, sympathy is going to be a natural outflow from that. What does it look like? I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. And this is a great picture of what sympathy is. What did I say, 13.3? Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. It's a great picture of what this word sympathy means. If there's in prison, consider yourself as you being in prison with them. If somebody's hurting, consider yourself hurting with them. If somebody's filled with joy, feel joy with them. A person or a congregation that's only, that every individual is involved with themselves is not a mature congregation. This is an essential characteristic of Christianity. The next one is love. Love one another. How do we love one another? What does that mean? What made me, first thing it made me think is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? The love chapter. Y'all familiar with that? Somebody quote some verses out of that chapter. Doesn't have to be in order or all of it. Love is patient. Love is what else? Anything else? What's that? Kind. What else out of that? 
Keeps no record of wrongs. What else does it say in 1 Corinthians about love? Does not boast. What else? Patient. What's that? It's not self-serving. What would you say? Delights in good. Right. Okay. And in the end, these three, remain, these three things remain, right? Faith, hope, and love. And the grace of these is love. I can't add anything to that. Right? You guys just said it. That's what it means to love one another. And that is an essential characteristic of a Christian. Next one, compassion. It's interesting. This word compassion, as I kind of studied the word, it, it, it's the same root word as the word for bowels, like guts, like your insides, right? And the Greeks, to the Greeks, the word meant like intestinal fortitude, like, you know, strength. To the Hebrew, it meant mercy and concern. And it's the same word that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan who uh, found the guy who was supposed to kind of be his, his, his enemy, somebody he didn't associate with, these two groups, right? But he saw him beaten and broken by rob. You know, he's beaten by robbers and left on the side of the road to die. And, and all the guys that should have helped this guy passed on by. But the Good Samaritan stopped. And he took care of his wounds, and he carried him to a safe place to stay, and he paid for him to stay, and he left money so he could, he could you know, uh, be okay in the end. And what that good Samaritan practiced was that word compassion, same word. It's also the word used in the story of the prodigal son, but it was used to describe the prodigal father, the prodigal's father. That when he saw his son coming down the road after being gone so long, looking and smelling like he'd been living in a pig pen because he had. The dad didn't run down the road and say, I told you so. Did you learn your lesson? I knew this would happen. What do you have to say for yourself? What did he do? Somebody tell me what he did. He celebrated his return. He ran to him with mercy and concern and joy. Compassion. Remember, he's talking to us. Humility is the next one. Genuine humility comes from knowing who God is and knowing who we are. That's the picture of this word humility in this verse. Knowing who God is and knowing who we are and knowing how much we have been forgiven. And when we know that, how can we be prideful? How can we be boastful? How can we look down on our brother or sister? How can we feel like we're better than anybody else when we truly have an understanding and a comprehension of who God is and who we are and how much we've been forgiven? That's the key to humility, true humility. And then in verse 9, he talks about Blessing, but it's not just blessing. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Bless and don't curse. Again, this should sound familiar, because Peter was just mirroring the words of Jesus. When Jesus did the Sermon on a Mount and Peter was out there listening to him, 
Back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, you go to Matthew chapter 5, 44, Jesus was, was preaching this one of his most famous sermons. And you can read it later if you want. But Jesus says, uh, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What good is it, people, to love the ones who love you? Jesus said, I'm giving you a new standard. Bless when you are cursed. No longer an eye for an eye. No longer tit for tat. That's a saying my grandpa used to say all the time. You know, tit for tat. It's kind of that eye for an eye. You know? But the new standard is you got to take the tit and not give back the tat and then bless them on top of it. That's our new standard. And when Jesus, when the Holy Spirit is working in us, maturing us, doing his work in us, transforming us into the image of Christ, these six essential characteristics will come out of us naturally, like a carrot is produced from a carrot seed as it matures and grows. And what's, uh, and then the last uh, couple of verses, verse 11 and 12, are from Psalm 34. And that'll be another homework assignment. Go home, read Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 was really important to the, the first, the early church, the first century church. It served as a hymn that they sang, but it was also uh, like a discipleship guide for them. It talked about God's, it was a testament to God's grace. It was a formula for a full life in Christ. There's great verses in there in Psalm 34 that talks about keep your tongue from evil and deceit, turn from evil, pursue good, pursue peace, and that word pursue is important. We'll get back to that in a second. And this flows out of Christ being formed in us. Psalm 34. And then, uh, go ahead and put the next slide up, verses 13 through 17. And so like I've already established, as, as, as we begin to act out of our new nature as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and as we grow and mature and the Holy Spirit begins to form Christ in us, and as the Holy Spirit more and more forms Christ in a, this church, these essential characteristics will begin to flow out naturally from that transformation. And things begin to happen. And what happens is a contrast begins to form between us and the world around us. It's not an oppositional or aggressive or prideful distinction or contrast. But it is a definite contrast from the world around us. We began to look differently. Now, let's step back and, and, and I'm going to remind you of the context of this letter again. This was a time when, Paul, when Peter was writing this letter to these churches that uh, it was a time of persecution of the church and it was a time of Caesar worship. You know, worshiping the emperor in Rome. He had declared himself a god, and he was making everybody worship him. And it was, it was, a, real, it was, it was a real concern, fear for these people, that they could at any moment for following Jesus be dragged off and be forced to give a defense of themselves in front of a kangaroo court somewhere. 
That was a real concern for them. And there was a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear about living for Christ. And you see it all throughout the, throughout the, the, the text. Who's going to harm you? But even as you suffer, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Right? There's fear. They were afraid. Let me switch my notes here. Because of it, they could be dragged off and they had to defend themselves. And Peter is preaching to them. He says, don't be afraid. Now flash back with me to a minute to the night Jesus was arrested, right? And it was kind of chaos and they dragged him off and he was being beaten. And Peter was kind of on the fringes watching what was going on, right? As a disciple, this Peter who said, you know, who cut the ear off the guy because he was going to fight for Jesus. Suddenly, when things started really coming down, the crowd started looking at him and interrogating him. And Peter gave in to the fear. He was intimidated. And he didn't have an answer for him. And he denied Jesus three times. Well, Peter had come a long way flashing back to when he wrote this letter of 1 Peter. And he's telling them, you guys, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Peter said, don't be afraid if, uh, for doing good. Literally, that's, that phrase said, um, if you are eager to do good. That's an, that's an interesting phrase in the original language. So, so I read. It, it literally translates, if, it says this. If of the good zealots you become. Who is going to harm you if of the good zealots you become? He's saying, if you guys are zealous for doing good, if you guys pursue goodness, remember that, that the word pursue, pursuing goodness, that phrase is also in Psalm 34. If you pursue good, there's no reason for you to be afraid. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be afraid of them, but don't fear what they fear. Meaning, they, you know, they were afraid of Rome, and they were afraid of the emperor, and they were living out of fear. And Peter's exhorting them, encouraging them, don't be afraid. He's saying, don't worship what they worship. Continue to worship Christ quietly in your heart. Don't worship what they worship. If everybody else is worshiping Caesar, don't worship that. And don't be afraid. And when we live that way, when of the good zealots we become... That contrast is starting to be formed. We, are, we begin to be different. We begin to stand out in the world. And Peter's saying that. Be a contrast. Be, a, be different. Be a rebel. Young people, you want to be different? You want to be a rebel? You don't need a tattoo? You can get a tattoo if you want. That's not the point. But you don't need a tattoo. If you really want to be a rebel, let these characteristics flow out of Christ in you. You'll be different. You'll be contrasted from the world. You'll be a rebel. And again, it's not a rebellion that's aggressive or oppositional, you know, or, or prideful. Like he said, where is it? In, in verse uh, 15. But do this with gentleness and respect. All right? It doesn't have to be oppositional. But it does need to be a contrast. And when that happens... When you begin to stand out, when you're different, something interesting happens, Peter points out. People start to ask questions. 
They're going to ask questions. When he writes up there in, uh, where is it? I have, uh, but do this. Oh, yeah. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if Peter says, be prepared to give an answer, we're assuming that people are asking questions, right? People are asking questions. And that's what happens when you begin to let Christ transform you individually, let the Holy Spirit form Christ in your life as a, individually and as a church, and you stand out from the world, then people start ask, asking questions. And some will ask you questions, some who want to commend you for doing good, right? Who want to praise you for doing good. They're going to they're gonna ask you questions. And, and this is fair, right? Because when we do good, people should commend us, right? They should praise us. So some people might do that. And they're going to ask you, they're going to go, what's your secret? It reminds me of like every once in a while, if you watch the news, there's a slow news day and they have a, you know, somebody turns 110 in the nursing home, right? And they go to there and they show the birthday cake and, you know, it's pretty impressive. You know, I'm always looking, I'm like, man, you made it a long ways. You made it a long time. You might not make it through this little news clip, but you made it a long time, right? <laughs> and it's pretty impressive. And inevitably, the question gets asked by the reporter. So tell me your secret to living to 110. Now I say something cute like, I drink one shot of whiskey and read the Bible every day, right? <clears throat> something like that. But it's like incredible. Like, man, that's amazing you're 110. How do you do it? We want to know. That's the kind of questions you get asked for those who want to commend you for doing good. What is your secret? How do you do that? It's awesome. But sometimes the questions come from those who persecute us and hurt us, right? And this isn't fair. I think Bob, I heard one of the sermons before, and Bob talked about this whole idea of fair, right? It's not fair. Sometimes we suffer for doing good. And he told us about the example of Jesus who suffered for doing good. It wasn't fair, the suffering he went through. But he did it for us. And it's a great, it's a perfect model for us on how we're supposed to deal with suffering too. When it's not fair. But when we suffer by those who persecute us or oppose us uh, or hate us for doing good and we continue to do good, they're going to ask us questions too. Why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep going? They might ask it with contempt in their voice, but they're going to ask us questions. So Peter says, hey, when they, they ask you questions because whether they're com commending you for doing good or persecuting for you doing good, you're going to get asked a question when you stand out from the world like this. And he says, be prepared to have an answer. Be prepared to have an answer when you're asked about the hope that is within you. What is the answer when we're asked about what our secret is? What is the answer when we're asked why we keep being, doing good when, when they are opposing or hurting us? Peter tells us the answer is the hope within us. Be prepared to give an answer about the hope within you. You put up the next section, 18 through 22, for me, please. Thank you. Suffering. 
The righteous for the unrighteous. What verse, it's hard for me to see up here. What verse is that right there? It says the righteous for the unrighteous. 18. So Jesus, and again, Bob did a great job laying this out. That Jesus suffered, and it was unmerited, and it wasn't fair, but he suffered for us. And it is a great model for us when we face suffering. We should follow it. But Peter adds a little extra information about suffering in, these, in verses 18 to 19. I'm going to read it. Pray for us. Oh, boy, I'm still in Hebrews 13. Does somebody have it right there? Can you read it out loud for me real quick? First Peter 3, 18 and 19. Anybody? You're going to make me get it, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. So 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. You could have read it from the screen. I know you guys are shy. Somewhere. There it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He gives us some information about why Jesus suffered. He suffered for our sins to conquer death, which is really our ultimate fear, isn't it? You see, there was a purpose in Christ's suffering, and Christ accomplished that purpose. And that purpose is that he conquered death, and by conquering death, we are made alive in him, and that is our hope. Amen? That's our hope. He conquered death, and we are made alive in him. Now, the next couple of verses, verses 20 and 21, these are kind of some tough verses because it feels like Peter kind of takes a a hard left turn and starts talking about Noah and baptism, and and we don't have time to get into all the meanings right now, Um, and I don't have all the answers to that. But there's a couple important things to know about these verses 20 and 21. First of all, is that the story of Noah to the early church was really important. Kind of like Psalm 34. That was an important story for them at that time. And it was taught all the time. And and the first century church related to the story of Noah. You know, Noah, he had a message of salvation. Hey, it's going to rain. God told me to build this boat. When it rains, your salvation is running into this boat. And that was his message of salvation. But it mostly fell on deaf ears. Mostly people didn't buy into it. At the time, Noah was, you know, building that boat. And it says even in these verses, only in the end, only eight came in. But the first century church related to that message of salvation. They related to that message they got from God about salvation. And, and as Noah said, you got to run into the boat. The first century church was saying... It's going to rain, and you need to run into Jesus. That's your hope and your salvation. And like Noah, they felt like it mostly fell on deaf ears, and mostly people opposed it. So they related to the story of Noah. And and baptism was tied in because the water and the symbolism of it, it was all tied together. And that symbolism of the baptism, uh, again, it, it is a living kind of word picture of that idea of, Uh, Like Noah's boat, the ark, 
and Jesus being our salvation and our hope. And the key word in those two verses is patience. God was patient while Noah built the ark. And God is patient with us now with the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we enter that, when we hear that call, after he's been patient with us, and we run into the boat, to the ark, when we run into Jesus and are saved, the Holy Spirit begins to do that work in us. And we're transformed. And then verse 22 it's such an awesome verse because it, this whole chapter builds up to this verse in 22 and he, and he paints this picture of, of, of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood because we heard the message of salvation and we asked Christ in and then the Holy Spirit begins to transform us and form Jesus in us and then we, we develop these essential characteristics and then once we do that, there's a contrast between us and the world and then when there's a contrast between us and the world, they ask us questions. And we can tell him about the hope that is in us. And he builds up to 22. Last part of 21. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. What a cool picture. And Peter's reminding us that we have a bigger picture. It kind of puts all our political, our current political climate all in perspective, right? We can get, we can get worked up and all that and worried about it and, and wondering about it. And there's all this pomp and circumstance around it and all this stuff, right? And it seems so big. But Peter reminds us that there's a bigger perspective for us. And that our salvation and our hope is not in politics or a country or anything else other than Jesus. That's our hope and our salvation. And our salvation comes from him. And he sits in a high and lofty place above all the stuff that goes on in this world. So in conclusion, Peter, through this little letter, exhorts us and encourages us and tells us again when the heat is turned up, when the screws are tightened, when times are shaky, he reminds us that we are a chosen people, not of our own doing, but through the work and the, and the person of Jesus Christ, that we're a royal priesthood and that as a chosen people and a royal priesthood, what grows naturally out of us are these, these essential characteristics. And when Christ is formed in us and these essential characteristics are, are part of who we are individually and a part of our church that we'll begin to stand out from the world. And then when we stand out from the world, people will ask us questions, sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with bad intentions, but they're going to ask us questions. And when they ask us, be prepared to have an answer about the hope that is in you. So how are we doing? Are people asking questions? Are people asking questions about you individually? Are people asking questions about Wellspring Church? What's your secret? Why do you guys keep doing this? 
Are you prepared with an answer about the hope within you? If you don't have that hope within you, start there. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the hope that is within us. I thank you for that message of salvation, just like Noah cried out to the people and said, it's going to rain, and your salvation is the boat, and when it starts raining, run in, that you extend us that same invitation today, and that when you dwell in us, Lord, that our very core, we are a chosen people and a royal priesthood, and as you do your work in us, you develop these essential qualities. And when that happens, God, it's growing out of us naturally, out of you and us, we stand out and people ask questions and we can give an answer about our hope, which is you, Jesus. Thank you. I pray if anybody out there today has never made that first step of running to Jesus for salvation, so that they can have a hope within them. I pray, God, that today would be the day. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.